ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When the Sydney Harbour Bridge was opened in 1932, anyone who was anyone was part of the celebrations. There were governors in top hats, generals in military uniforms. There were floats and dances and, in a sign of things to come, a spectacular firework display. Also there, right at the heart of the grand opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, was a nine-year-old boy named Lenny Gwyther, along with Lenny's horse, Ginger Mick. The story of Lenny and Ginger is one of the most remarkable to come out of the building of this great Australian landmark. Peter Lawler is the chief cricket writer of The Australian, and he tells Lenny's story in his book, The Bridge. Hi, Peter. Hi, how are you, Sarah? How did you first come across Lenny's story? Well, I suppose um, I was commissioned to do this book. Before I was a cricket writer, I might add, this is a past life. And so I set about researching the building of the bridge, and I just noticed a line. Uh, the two, pro- two historians before me, uh, a guy called Richard Raxworthy and another guy called Peter Spirit, they'd done a lot of work on around history around the bridge, but they, they both mentioned this boy called Lenny Gwyther, who'd ridden his horse from Leangatha to be at the opening of the bridge. And that was about the sum total of it, you know. And he was in the opening ceremony. He, he rode between the workers and the Aborigines who'd been mustered down from somewhere and dressed in kangaroo skins. And there were a magnificent picture of him. It's just, uh, you've seen the picture. What, what's it look like? Uh, he's a small boy on a smaller horse. The horse is called Ginger Mick. His feet dangle down, his bare legs. He's got a sou'wester hat. He's got a swag at the front of his horse looking quite out of place on the bridge. I mean, this is a bridge for the future. I mean, this is a child from history. And he's come from Leangatha. Now, I'm vaguely aware of where Leangatha is because I'm a Victorian, and it's, it's right down south end of Gippsland. It's a long way to ride a pony, particularly when you're nine years old. So uh, I was sucked into Lenny's story. Tell us a bit about the town and the area that Lenny grew up. So it's rural Victoria. What did his family do? Well, I'm cheating a bit by calling him a Leangatha boy because he actually comes out from uh, near a place called Coonwarra. So they're outside of Leangatha. It's farming districts in the east of Victoria. Um, as you head east out of Melbourne towards uh, Can River that way, they were farmers. They had dairy cattle. I think they had 60 or 70 head, which is a fair bit, isn't it? Uh, Lenny's grandfather had opened up the area. His grandfather was dead by that stage. His father ran the farm. It was Captain Leo Tennyson Gwyther was his name. <laughs> they called him the captain in the district. He was a, a bit of an odd man, a bit of a straight backs. Um, but he was a genuine captain. He was a military man. Oh, he was, yes. He'd fought in the First World War. He had a terrible war. I don't think you could have a good First World War, could you? But um, the farm is called Fleurs because that's where Captain Gwyther, Lenny's dad, had won the military cross for uh, bravery in action. He'd, uh, he'd put out a burning munitions dump on the front. Everyone had run away and he ran back and put the dump out and freed a, bur- a man who was buried by the bomb that had landed to save his life. And strangely enough, the same thing had happened to him the week before. He'd been buried by a bomb and someone had saved his life. So he was shot twice, he was gassed, he was bombed numerous times. He won the military cross and bar and was presented it by the king 
at Buckingham Palace. So yeah. this is this is Lenny's dad, and then he came back after the war to the farm just outside of Lee and Gatha. How do you think Lenny saw his dad? What kind of figure would he have been in in little Lenny's life? Oh, he was an absolute hero to his boy. If you look at what the what Lenny said around that time, he he, he thought that, that there was nothing more noble than to have fought in a war. He had nothing but respect for the soldiers. He wanted to be a soldier himself, and he did become one, actually. He fought in the Second World War. What sort of stories are there about Lenny as a little kid as he's growing up before he undertakes this great adventure? Well, Lenny lives a life that I think young boys must have lived for centuries prior. I mean, he, he lives on a farm out there with the cattle and the potatoes and the onions. He works very hard on the farm. He's the eldest boy at the age of two. He's given a horse called Ginger Mick <laughs> by his maternal grandfather, Peg Leg Stevenson, I think his name was. He lost a, a leg too in an accident. So Lenny, you know, he, he has to help out in the farm. He has a horse that he rides seven miles to school every day, well, presumably from the age of about five. He has to ride into Lee and Gatha. So he a horse get... isn't just for fun. It's kind of essential no. to life. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, they had, they had ho working horses on the farm. They had four working horses on the farm, which is part of the story, but uh, no electricity. And he was something of an inventor little Lenny. Yeah, he was. He was. There was an engineering spirit in Lenny. I mean, there wouldn't have been a lot, of, a lot of engineering around the farm, you'd imagine, you know, a bit of the machinery and things like that. And they had a radio. Lenny, Lenny built a land yacht for his younger siblings What's to ride around. the yacht? Well, I imagine it's a billy cart that <laughs> has a sail. <laughs> I've never seen a photograph of it. He, he built a canoe for the, uh, to, to get around the uh, dam in for the kids. Later on, he built a uh, washing machine for his mother. A washing machine? A washing machine. Initially, it, was, it worked on a hand pump system, but later he attached an electric engine to it. So it May well have been the first electric washing machine in Australia, I don't know. And he was, he was quite a keen draftsman as well. So, yeah, Lenny was a curious boy. And this horse that he got, Ginger Mick, when he was two, what kind of bond did they have? Well, how, was, how did Lenny feel about Ginger Mick? Oh, a boy and his horse. I think it's a greater bond than, than a boy and his dog in a way because a horse is a lot more useful, isn't it? It can get you to school. He rode it in, he rode it in all the... Uh, the shows around the district, and he said, there's a great quote from him in one of the papers at the Times. It was a fantastic, it could stick to a beast like a leech, and you almost need glue on your saddle to stay, to stay with the horse. It was a red pony, uh, not very tall. In fact, it, it, a, a, man would, a man would stand taller than this horse. There is some suggestion that the horse was born on the same day as Lenny. So they were exactly the same age. When Lenny was nine, his dad broke his leg. What did that mean for the farm? Well, that was a catastrophic event. Uh, the captain had never been well on his return from war. He, his lungs were terrible because of the mustard gas. And he had ulcerated legs, which sounds awful, doesn't it? It sure does. On top of that, he's, he, he's had an accident on the farm one day and he's broken his leg. And he's transferred to hospital in Melbourne. So, so it must have been quite a serious accident. Now, at this time of year in 1931, the fields need to be ploughed for the crops to be planted, and there's nobody there except a nine-year-old boy, the hero of our story, Lenny. Um, 
and he's not using the horse Ginger Mick at this stage. He uses the four working horses. He, he um, must have been so much bigger than him. Four oh, working extraordinary horses. Extraordinary thought, isn't it? Yeah, these are big horses. Harnesses them up and he ploughs a 24-acre field. So harrows and smodges. What the is smodges? Smodge means to smooth it out, I'm told. I'm not, not a farming person myself, but that's what I've read. It's an enormous amount of work. And when the captain comes back from hospital, he's astounded by what the lad's done. You know, he's a chip off the old block, this kid. And he sort of says to him, well, you know, you deserve a reward. I mean, you know, it's a packet of boiled lollies or something like that, whatever passed for a reward in those days. Now, we are talking a little bit earlier about it, Lenny's love of engineering, but like the rest of Australia, he had become enthralled by these tales coming down from Sydney about the, the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I mean... To us, and the Sydney Harbour Bridge is a big thing, isn't it? I mean, we all know it from tea towels, and whenever you go to Sydney, you have a look at it and go, gee, it is a big bridge. It's a serious bridge. But in 1930, in Australia, not just in Australia, in the world, it was the biggest engineering project in history. Nobody had ever attempted anything like this. Nobody had built a bridge this large anywhere in the world. And here we are, right down in the sort of butt of civilization, little old Australia, and we've got this magnificent bridge being built. This, it, It's an engineering feat that's never been attempted. It, it's extreme engineering. And it's huge. How um, would he have known about it? How would little Lenny on this farm outside of Lynn Gather have known about the Sydney Harbour Bridge? Well, even Victorians <laughs> had to concede. <laughs> I'm sorry, but there was a lot of jealousy. <laughs> and there still is. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Victorians have a bit of a chip on their shoulder about what goes on in New South Wales. <laughs> But even they had to concede that this was a pretty serious thing. I mean, there was national pride in this construction. So he would have been reading about it yeah, in the Yeah, would have been newspaper. in the papers. He, perhaps he heard about it on the radio as well. Certainly the Victorian papers were full of stories about the bridge. And in fact, all of the state newspapers were full of stories about the bridge. So anyway, we get to the point. Lenny wanted to go and see the bridge opening, which was going to happen that March, 1932. So he said, Dad, I want to go and see the bridge opening. And I, and apparently there was just, well, you could catch the train up because I think, unbeknownst to them at the time, there, were, there was nine trainloads of Victorians heading up for the opening of the bridge and quite a few trainloads coming across from Adelaide as well. But Lenny had other ideas. He wanted to saddle up Ginger Mick and ride him up through the Snowies, basically, and be there for the opening ceremony. I'm just trying to imagine what his parents, what their reaction would have been. I mean, I'm thinking of my nine-year-old said yeah. to me, I want to ride my pony alone for a thousand kilometres to this city. I mean, <laughs> what was their reaction? <laughs> and he wouldn't have had an iPhone either, so you could stay in touch with him. Um, well, apparently his mother was quite concerned. So that's not surprising. And apparently the other mothers in, in the district were a little bit cynical. But uh, Captain Gwyther decided it wasn't a bad idea to let the kid go. Well, he couldn't say no to the boy after what he'd done. So. He basically agreed to it happening. It, it's funny, isn't it? I think about it a lot. I think about it with my kids. I think, that, look, I'm in my 50s. So I, I was actually one of those children who, who grew up wandering around the streets barefoot and going to the shop and going to mates' houses and wandering all over. I lived in country Victoria. We wandered all over town. Our children are, were, are barely allowed in the front yard, are they, unless the <laughs> gate's locked. I mean, we've become so paranoid about the safety of our children. We won't let them walk to the shop. You'd be very nervous about letting a nine-year-old walk to the shop alone. I mean, but here's this nine-year-old boy. He's going to ride a 1,000 kilometres on his horse alone in the middle of the Depression too. 
people have actually hit hit the roads. I mean, people are out living on the Susso. They're moving from town to town looking for work. And if they're not looking for work, they're forced to move anyway because you can only claim benefits for so long in one town before you have to move on to the next town and the next town. So the roads are full of desperate unemployed men. It, it, it's an unsettling time. On Conversations, I'm Sarah Konoski. My guest is Peter Law, and we're discussing the extraordinary story of little Lenny Gwyther, who, uh, as a reward for ploughing the family farm in the 1930s, asks to ride his pony, Ginger Mick, solo from rural Victoria into Sydney for the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. It's a story that Peter tells in his book, The Bridge. Peter, this journey, it's about a thousand kilometres. You've Travelled it uh, in a car, I think, rather than on a pony. Give me a sense of the countryside. What what kind of terrain was Lenny setting off through? Well, he, he set off on the highway out of town, um, headed off down the highway. If you look at the highway in the 1930s, it was a goat track. I mean, honestly, you wouldn't take your uh, four-wheel drive on it. <laughs> but he didn't stick to the highway very long because uh, once he got up to that Can River area, he turned north and headed up and skirted around the snowy mountains area. So basically went up this road called the Monaro, which is, it's the back route, you know. And how long did he think it would take? Like, had he mapped out before he went what, oh, his, what his destinations were going to be? Lenny wasn't a lad that left anything to chance. Yeah, he, he mapped it out. He figured that he could ride around 30 kilometres a day because he, he had to look after the horse. He had the horse... The horse got new shoes, which had uh, which were made out of motor springs. So they were the they were the cutting edge technology. Motor apparently. springs. I'm yeah, not, I'm, I don't I'm, know. Envisioning <laughs> Ginger Mick sort of bouncing along on something, yeah, but right. I hope that's not what it was. <laughs> so he figured he could do about thirty k's a day. So it would take. Well, it did take him thirty three days in all. With I think he rested once or twice along the way. Oh, there might have been two days where he didn't ride. And apart from Ginger Mick's special shoes, had he had any other special preparation for this great undertaking? Uh, Ginger Mick was spelled before the ride. I think it could have been for six weeks. So Ginger Mick had it easy. So he had a good rest. Had a very good rest, yeah, and was uh, ready to go. And what what would have little Lenny been carrying with him? Hardly anything. It's quite surprising, isn't it? He had a sort of sugar sack over his shoulder. He had uh, a little swag, as I mentioned before, his sou'wester hat, his woolen coat, his short pants and his leather boots, and that was about it. They had some contacts along the way. They knew some people from the Vulcan Oil, vac, sorry, Vacuum Oil Company, who, uh, and they knew some people up the road. But basically, it was word of mouth. And Lenny was willing to knock on doors and ask if he, he and the horse could sleep out in the um, barn. Uh, that was the plan. So the morning that he sets off, Peter, is there any record from that day? I mean, was it in the paper or, or is there a photo? What do we know about that moment where he, he said goodbye? It was a big day in Leangatha. It was show day. So there were plenty of reports in the paper. You know, the whole of town had sort of combed its hair and, you know, put on its best clothes. Um, there'd been a fire the night before because the people connected with the carnival had perhaps let the billy boil too long and set fire to the grass all around town. The Shire president decided to see Lenny off. So Lenny was already losing his anonymity. Uh, the Shire president, a chap called Bob McIndoe, Bob uh, gave Lenny a letter of introduction to the mayor of Sydney and uh, farewell the boy at, at, on the town hall steps. And, and there's, there's a wonderful photo of Lenny on the horse, his mother looking a little concerned, no sign of dad, and his sister Beryl 
who's still alive today, is Queenslander, um, sitting there eating a bag of sweets, I think, uh, looking off into the distance as her brother sets out on this great journey. And uh, apparently Lenny sort of, uh, according to the South Gippsland paper, sort of looked over his shoulder as he rode out of town, gave a little wave and... Um, that was it. The and great journey goes. began. Yes. Off he rides. And, and Rode to Merbu North, 25 kilometres that day. Mm. So he gets through the first day, but then on the second or third day, he meets a bushfire. What happened? Well, it, it, was, a, it was a rough time of year. Obviously, it was very hot. It was very windy. Um, and on Friday the 5th, the entire area was swept by bushfires. Lots of little towns. Is poor mum and dad hearing about that? I mean, yeah, that must I'm, have been I'm terrifying. Sure. And what about the boy on the horse? I mean, apparently, according to the accounts from the time, Lenny rode directly into the fire and was blinded by the smoke and had no idea where he was going. I mean, it must have been a terrifying thing for the boy. And, and, and these were bad fires. They burnt through four mill towns and, and nine people were killed very close to where uh, Lenny was riding that day. So he, he was lucky to actually get through all of that. I wonder if that made him think twice about this undertaking, whether he thought maybe he'd bitten off more than he could chew. Yeah, you'd have to ask Lenny that. I mean, he didn't really... <laughs> <laughs> he kept going. He kept going, yes. He pushed on to Kilmany that night and then on to Sale and to Can River, so he just kept riding. And it started to rain the next day, so I think he would have felt somewhat relieved. In fact, that was the end of the drought. The drought broke that next day. And were people in these little towns that he's riding through, were they on the lookout for him? Like, had, had news of this kid started to spread around the countryside? Yes, word of mouth did actually get ahead of him so that people were riding out to greet him and newspaper men were there to take his photograph and record his thoughts, which weren't... There wasn't a lot of them going on, to be honest. <laughs> Lenny, Lenny was a difficult boy to quote. Um, I've come across a few like that in journalism. Um you are a sports writer after all, Peter. Um, but, I mean, was, was, was this seen as a kind of very adventurous or brave thing for a little kid oh, to be doing back oh, then? God, yeah. I, got, I say Lenny's writing out of history at the time he's writing out of history. You know, Australia is becoming a modern place. They write up Lenny as, as being possessed with this pioneer spirit. What formed Australia, what made, made Australia the great country it was in 1932 hadn't been forgotten that it was embodied in this boy who wanted to ride overland. They talked about him in terms like, like the great explorers. Uh, his father sort of mentioned his Anzac spirit. I mean, he really sort of ticked all those sort of boxes about what Australians imagined that they were and what they worried in 1930 that they were losing, this yes. independence of spirit, this ability to you know, ride out into the country and discover something, even if it's just yourself. And I guess, as you were saying, this period, of course, the early 30s, is, is the height of the Depression, This, mm. just as the bridge must have been this symbol of renewal or, or hope, this idea that this little kid could do this great, adventurous, magnificent thing. That must have been the kind of stories people were looking for at that time too. Oh, oh absolutely. People wrote letters. They were so moved. They wrote letters to the, to the newspapers. I mean, there was a poem written about Lenny in the Sydney Morning Herald. Quite a good poem, actually. <laughs> it sort of compares. It, it talks about a little boy in the backyard, and when he looks up at the clouds, he's, he's Kingsford Smith, and when he plays with his bat, he's Bradman, because at this time Bradman... Bradman and Farlap were the two big names in Australia. When uh, this boy plays with his bat in the poem, he's, he's Bradman, but when he gets on his push bike, he's Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's, he's the... <laughs> 
did did he ever meet any problems on the way, or was he ever turned away by anyone on this journey? Only once, only once, and it was a misunderstanding in sale. Oh, we don't want to sort of sully the reputation no, of people from sale. No, it's a black mark against sale. But uh, the people who owned the property were away, and somebody else, like the housekeeper or something, answered the door and didn't think it was appropriate that she, that she give Lenny birth for the night. So Lenny rode onto the next farm and was given somewhere to stay. You know, the next person he met in sale was very, was like everybody else he met along the way, and. When the uh, owners of that property got home, they were horrified and rode over and uh, made their peace with Lenny. So, no, no, he was welcomed everywhere. And how could you not welcome this gorgeous little boy on a horse? And, and I'm thinking for Lenny's point of view too, um, if his daily life had been this, you know, really hard slog working on the farm, riding his horse to school, day in, day out, the demands and drudgery of rural life, what an adventure. I mean, every day must have felt like Christmas when he'd go and turn up at people's houses and they'd make this fuss of him and, I guess, cook him something good to eat and, and make him feel so special. Yeah, well, he uh, in certain towns, he even got to stay in the local hotel. You know, he was put up. You, know, you can imagine what that's like for a farm boy. I mean, I remember how excited I was the first time I ever got to stay in a fancy hotel. Um, he, was, he was fated. I mean, by the time he reaches Canberra, Lenny really is becoming a celebrity. What uh, happened to him in Canberra? In Canberra, the local grammar school rode out, sent riders out to meet him and offered for him to stay in, in the boarding school. Uh, he, he went to Parliament House. He met the local member from Leangatha, Mr Patterson, who took him to tea. The newspapers say he looked overwhelmed and bewildered. But he even <laughs> met the Prime Minister. In Canberra? He did, yes, Mr Lyons. So uh, he had quite a good time on the way there. He left Canberra and he went to Bowral, which was the home of the aforementioned Bradman, and he rode down Shepherd Street and was shown where Bradman lived. Well, he was a big cricket fan, was he? Isn't everybody a cricket Sorry, fan, Peter. Sarah? <laughs> did he get to meet Bradman? Later on he actually gets to meet Bradman, but uh, I won't ruin that for you just yet. <laughs> did he have any contact with his mum and dad, while he was making this epic journey? Early in the journey, his father uh, got a lift with a neighbour in a Model A Ford and rode up to meet the boy to see how he was going um, and found him in fine fettle. He, he took him to the doctor who gave him a clean bill of health. This was after two weeks on the road and so the captain rode back home to tell everybody how well it was all going. Unfortunately, the captain crashed the car on the way back. <laughs> You're kidding. No, no. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous automobiles. Yes. <laughs> when he finally gets to Sydney, did he go straight to the bridge? Well, not exactly straight <laughs> to the bridge, Sarah. He did stop at Mossvale and in, he and Ginger Mick, <laughs> who are obviously still going pretty well after having travelled the almost 1,000 kilometres, decided to enter the, um, into the show, the Mossvale show. And I think he got a uh, he got two ribbons actually. He won won one event and he got another one just for showing up because he'd come so far. He and the horse. He of and Ginger Mick. Do we know how Ginger Mick was faring? I mean, Lenny got a clean bill of health from the GP, but what toll was this journey taking on the horse? Well, clearly not much because the horse has just won an event at the Easter Show. I think the ho the horse is loving it. I mean, it must be quite <laughs> quite an adventure for the horse too. So Lenny by this stage really has become something of a celebrity. He's being talked about in the newspapers and a film crew 
turned up to to meet him after the Mosfell show. How um how did you respond to that? Uh, Lenny really wasn't the sort of boy. He, he wasn't like young people today. I don't, I don't reckon Lenny would be taking selfies <laughs> if he was around today or trying to become famous on one of those sort of short-lived things. Uh, Lenny was asked how he found the attention by a reporter and he replied, it is most pestiferous. Pestiferous. Isn't that a great word? What a, is it a real word? It's a real word, yes. What's it mean? Well, Pesty. Being, being a pest, yeah. He pestiferous. Finds, yes. And what he finds pestiferous is that he's besieged by cr- crowds of people. <laughs> he goes to Martin Square and I think 2,000 people turned up. Just for him and yes. Ginger Mick. Yes. And now the Victorian papers report this. So I'm not sure if it's true or not, but they report that the Sydney siders, who they thought were not perhaps of the best character, actually plucked hairs <gasps> from Ginger Mick's tail as souvenirs. And Lenny became quite distressed by all of this, as you imagine Ginger Mick did too. Um, and police, there was quite a, a dozen police had to show up and sort of clear Lenny's path. There were autograph seekers. It's amazing, uh, Peter. This story is incredible. That there was such a huge reaction yeah. to him. Yes, and, and and getting back to that quote, there was one other quote from Lenny at the time that I loved too. He said, "Oh, what a Bosca town." Bosca town. Yeah, I really had to. <laughs> You kind of know what he means, don't you? It's a bit like pestiferous. It's one of those words. It's in our DNA. I think early Australian word. It means bonza, basically. Do you know what bonza means? I'm happy with bonza. You're okay with bonza. I've never heard bosca. No, neither heard I until I What a bosca town. So, I mean, the attention would have been pestiferous. Yeah. But to see a city of that size and, and that scale, it must have been so exciting. Oh, for a kid with an engineering spirit. I mean... The biggest thing Lenny had ever seen before would have been, what, the town hall at Lee and Gatha or a tree? I mean, he'd come to Sydney and, you know, he was... uh, When he passed through Canberra, there were only 9,000 people living in Canberra at the time. I mean, Canberra had only been built a few years earlier or established a few years earlier. They were still marking it out. So to come to Sydney, a city of a million people... Uh, Which would have had quite a reputation, Sydney, uh, to to rural Victorians as a bit of a dangerous place, I'm uh, guessing. Yeah, I love the tension between Victorians and New South Wales people, even in that time. Uh, as I mentioned earlier that there were nine train loads of people going up to the bridge, but they were a bit concerned about how they get on in Sydney. The local papers had uh, uh, reminded them that there, were, that there was a, a meeting place for Victorians. The Victorian <laughs> League had set up rooms where they could get refreshments and escape the sort of... Uh, and safely nestle with, yeah, with other Victorians. get away Victorians. from all those people from New South Wales, Sydney types. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Lenny and Ginger Mick arrive. There are these thousands of people there to greet them. Do we know what his reaction was to finally seeing this this object of his obsession, his adoration, the Sydney Harbour Bridge? What what did he say? What did he think when he saw it? 
well, he's quoted at the time as just being blown away. I mean, it's a staggering structure, even today, isn't it? To us cynical people today who, you know, know that you can put a man on the moon or build an apartment block, you know, 150 storeys high. But this is an enormous structure. it still takes my breath away sometimes when I look at the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And and it looms not only, a, as I said, it, it loomed over the landscape of Australia at the time, but it, it, it's way bigger than anything in Sydney. It, it stretches, you know, from the CBD to the North Shore. It, I, I'm a bit of a bridge fan. <laughs> Don't get me started on the bridge because I'll talk all night about the bridge day and night. Um, but, it, you know, it, it brings together those two colonies of Sydney. It, it means for the first time in history that you can get on a train in Adelaide and go to Melbourne and go to Sydney and come up to Brisbane. For the people in, in Sydney, it just meant getting to the North Shore, but it was connecting Australia in a way. Bradfield, who was chief en- engineer of the bridge, had constructed a, a fantastic sort of transport network around. To that point, the s- people in Sydney, since they dumped the convicts there at the tank stream, 150 years before they looked at that north shore and to get there you either had to go via seven bridges which was a day-long journey down around the Parramatta River or you had to catch a ferry which there were a lot of ferries it was a bustling industry ferries left every I think there was two every five minutes from either side there was hundreds and hundreds of ferries but it it wasn't necessarily a great form of transport very difficult because there was a lot of fogs at that time or if there were storms all the ferries were cancelled and you know Sydney so Sydney was a town split in half and even just as you're describing the harbour Peter that must have been astonishing for Lenny just seeing all those boats and I guess seeing ocean liners as well as the ferries that as a little kid who was into engineering that must have just blow in his mind yeah that's right this is the big city isn't this really is the big smoke isn't it I reckon it would have been a smoky environment, wouldn't it, in the 30s? You know, people would have had wood fires and... All uh, that industry, heavy industry, industry around yeah, the harbour. I don't reckon it might necessarily be as clear and blue as it is today. But getting back to the bridge, they did say that when they actually joined the bridge together, 18 months before Lenny arrived, they actually got the two bits together and somebody walked across. They said, you could see the Blue Mountains um, from the top of the bridge and out past the harbour. It's a magnificent view. Lenny seized the bridge, but it wasn't yet open for the public for another week or so. What did he do with his time in Sydney before he was able to cross the bridge? Lenny was staying with family friends out of town. We don't know a lot. We know that the, the lo- one of the local newspapers, The Sun, picked him up and took him on a day trip around the bridge and took him out onto the harbour that we were talking about, took him out on one of the messenger power boats. The messenger brothers ran a powerboat service. Uh, they pop up in the bridge actually a little earlier because uh, they were, they hunted a whale. Under, unsuccessfully. Un, thankfully unsuccessfully. A 14-metre-long humpback whale that had made its way into the harbour. There's great descriptions of all these boats chasing it around the harbour. The descriptions are all given from the workers who are up on the bridge who sort of had, <laughs> had the expensive seats to watch this show as these um, clowns tried to throw spears and some, someone even let off like rifle shots at the whale. We've changed, haven't we? So he then is invited, amazingly, to take part in the opening ceremony. What was his role? Well, his role was just to be Lenny Gwyther, I think. (laughs) I think it was his role to remind Australia of where they'd come from, because here is this magnificent bridge that would eventually, you know, they had two train tracks, two tram tracks, enough road width for eight lanes later on, 
but at that stage they didn't even have two lanes. They didn't even think they'd need them. But he was this bridge to the future, you know, for for the motor car, the motor vehicle. And he was Lenny, like the Aboriginal horde that, uh, tribe that um, came behind him, who was something from the past. Mm. There's a magnificent picture of him on the bridge um, with the sou'wester on. Still got, still got sw- his same outfit. Yeah, still got his swag. Just to, <laughs> yeah, never know where you've got to go. Uh, going past the official dais at the time, and he just looks like uh, he looks like someone's dreamt him up. To be honest with you, a mythical character. But another horseman upstaged Lenny on that day. What happened? Oh yes, that's right. I always wondered why Lenny's story didn't get traction, and I think. Possibly just before Lenny rode onto the bridge, uh, another chap that is a little bit better known, a guy called Francis de Groot, who was also, he was an Irishman, but very much in love with the king. He was a monarchist, and he was aggrieved, like many people were, that uh, New South Wales, Jack Lang, wouldn't invite the king to open the bridge. This is the premier, Jack Lang, wanted to open the bridge himself. Yes, very left-leaning premier who was at odds with the conservatives at the time. And this was was actually quite a tumultuous time, you know. So there was a right-wing militia marching in the streets of Sydney at that time. The police were armed, given arms from, from the army in Sydney because there was such concern that there could be a civil war. The federal government was leaning, this is a very simplistic account of it, but the federal government was leaning on the New South Wales government to pay back its war bonds to England. Now, Jack Lang had starving people. Sydney had 20 to 30% unemployment at the time. The edges of Sydney were shanty towns around Botany Bay and uh, Malabar and those areas where people were living on the beaches, families were living on the beaches. He said, I'm not paying you for the war effort. I'm not paying England for the war effort while my people are starving. Uh, We feed our people first. The Conservatives in Canberra put through a bill to force New South Wales to use what money it had left in the bank to pay back these war bonds. Lang was a pretty cunning bloke. And and on the 9th of March, while Lenny was in town, he sent two cars down to the two banks, the Commonwealth Bank and the Bank of New South Wales, and withdrew every single penny <laughs> out of the banks and loaded them up. It was like a heist. It was like an old-fashioned gangster heist. At midday, they walked into the bank, midday Saturday, because they knew the banks were closing and they wanted to catch everybody off guard, and they loaded all the money that New South Wales had into suitcases. And they into took suitcases? It, yes, and they took it up to the Treasury building in sm- small denominations too. Because that's what they used to keep New South, New South Wales running. And so the tramways and the railways and all the public servants would go up to the Treasury and collect the workers' pay at the end of the week. And they had armed guards from the unions on these buildings because they were worried that the, that the federal government would actually come in and, and take the money back. So this is the backdrop that Francis de Groot, this mm. member of the right-wing militia, the New mm. Guard, thought this was an outrageous uh, a way for the, the state to behave and he didn't like laying, taking the glory, I guess, for the bridge and the bridge opening. He thought that should go to the Governor-General or, or yes. some other representative. So what did he do? How did Francis de Groot, and where did he get his idea from? Well, well it, it had become one of the great controversies of the time, like gay marriage perhaps or reconciliation, I don't know, but... 
the Conservatives believed the King should open the bridge, and if and the King was furious that he wasn't invited to open the bridge. If we look at Lady Game, who was the Governor's wife at the time, her papers say that poor Philip, who was the Governor of New South Wales at the time, was under terrible pressure from King George because he wanted to open the bridge, and Lang wouldn't let him. Lang said, they want to save money, I'll save them money, I'll open the bridge myself. Um, so, so the right wing, read by the group, were very upset about this, and they decided that they were going to do something about this. They were going to open the bridge themselves in the name of the king. And it's quite a, it's quite a comical scene in some ways. I mean, it's a very serious backdrop, but it becomes a comical scene. And strangely enough, he was actually inspired by a cartoon in the newspaper. Johnson, the cartoonist, had drawn a picture of an imaginary scene where one of these right wingers runs out and cuts the ribbon himself and announces that the bridge is open in the name of the king. And De Groot decides, what a good idea. A, what a great idea. I'm going to do that. But unlike uh, Lenny Gwyther, he didn't have his own pony. No. Where did Francis get one from? Francis hadn't ridden a horse for quite some time. Francis was a well-heeled sort of antique furniture dealer from the the nice suburbs of Sydney. But his wife had seen near their house one day, she'd seen a, a, a young woman with a horse. And she said, I've got this idea, Frank. We'll go, you could borrow that horse down there. So they went down, they borrowed this horse. And it wasn't like Ginger Mick. Ginger Mick was 12.2 hands high. I think this one was 17, 18 hands high. And the reason it was 17, 18 hands high was it was a, reti- a retired racehorse. So De Groot's put on, he's put on a sort of army uniform to disguise himself as part of the official ceremonies and got on this horse that he doesn't know and sharpened up his uh, ceremonial sword to pull off this heist to basically cut the ribbon in the name of the king and the good people of New South Wales. And at a certain moment, before Jack Lang can get down and get his scissors into action, De Groot dashes forward on this horse toward the ribbon with his sword held high. He's ready to cut it, but there was a little flaw in his plan. Racehorses in those days were held back at the starting line by a ribbon. So they were trained never to ride through a ribbon. When De Groot had planned to sort of be quite dashing and ride through the ribbon wielding his sword, but as the, as the horse got close to the ribbon, it reared back and it was rearing up and down and, it, and uh, he was doing his best to stay in the saddle. He uh, managed eventually to cut through the ribbon and uh, mumble his words that it was open and uh, he was knocked to the ground rather violently by the police who were very unimpressed and very embarrassed by what had happened. New South Wales Police Force were not very fond of the right-wing militia groups. They smashed him to the ground and uh, dragged him off and arrested him and that they, they, they were rather well prepared, the people who built the bridge. They had a spare ribbon and uh, they just tied the ribbon back together and pretended it didn't happen and it was a little bit down the road from the dignitary. So barely anybody saw it before he was dragged off and locked up in the madhouse, which was the cunning of Lang and his people. They uh, had him declared insane rather than uh, criminal. De Groot is a, a name that's gone down in history, Peter, but there are so many remarkable personalities connected with the building of this landmark. Tell me about Vince Kelly. Who was he? Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, perhaps after Lenny, Vince Kelly is one of my favourite stories to emerge from the bridge. Vince is a Belmain wharfie. He's not a massive bloke. He's a short bloke, but he's tough. and He's got a, a mate called Mo, and... They've, they've made a name for themselves, diving off, off steam cranes from great heights into the Belmain water for 10 shillings and things like that. Their knockabout folks will do anything. Now, they're workers on the bridge. 
building the bridge, as I said, was extreme engineering and it was extremely dangerous and it was an extraordinary thing to do. There's lots of X's in that sentence, I know, but uh, the engineers weren't certain that it would stay up there. I mean, bridges still fall down today, we know that, and bridges fell down a lot then. The biggest bridge, the heaviest bridge ever built, the biggest arch bridge ever built, no one had ever done it. So they were flying by the seats of their pants, and the guys that were up there, you know, some of them were 140 metres above the water. What uh, kind of safety equipment did Safety they have? equipment. I don't think they had the word safety in 1930s, in 1930s, late 20s, they were hanging on by one hand with massive rivet guns. They were crawling in and out of this and that. They were riding up and down on cranes. 16 people lost their lives building the bridge. And what's surprising about that is that it's such a small number when you consider how dangerous it was. This great structure was untethered. It swayed in the breeze. It rose, it, it rose up and down. Callie was one of the workers on the bridge. Callie was, was bolting in the roadway. So fortunately for Callie, he's only 50 metres above the water where he's working, and he's working one of these great rivet guns. The, they were the biggest rivets in the world that built the, Everything was big about the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Six million rivets. Callie was working the rivet gun, and he slipped, as a lot of people did. They, they were never tied on, these guys. They weren't provided proper shoes or anything like this. This was the depression. You took work where you could get it. He slipped. Now, Kelly was interesting because he was a high diver and he, he, a couple of other fellows had slipped into the water and had been killed. It, it's high enough to kill you. In fact, most of the time you will die. He said, I'll be sweet. You know what I'll do? If I fall, I'm just going to do it a somersault and go, go in head first and, you know, collect money from all my admiring mates. Well, he did. He slipped. He fell backwards. He fell 50 metres. He's basically at terminal velocity by the time he hit the water, but he managed to flip over backwards, as he said he would, and enter the water feet first. And he was smart enough to know that you have to hit the water with as little as possible. He pointed uh-huh. his toes and he clasped his hands above his head. Almost like a spear Like or a spear. He was slightly offline, very slightly offline, and that resulted in six broken ribs. But Vince was pretty tough. Vince swam to a nearby barge, got up and said, oh, I'm right. I think I'm okay. I can go back to work. Uh, the bosses... <laughs> you are kidding <laughs> no, me. No, I'm not kidding you. The bosses said, no, mate, not today. Uh, just go down and have a little medical checkup. He was back at work on Monday with his ribs strapped up. Back up on the back bridge. Back up high again. So, Lenny, he has all of that remarkable experience, Peter, and he, he's done it. He's done this ride. How was he supposed to get back home? to rural Victoria. Oh, that's a good part of the story, that. Well, the captain has come up to Sydney to meet the boy. This is Lenny's dad. Lenny's dad, the captain, Leo tennyson Guither, And the plan is to catch the boat back to Melbourne, as people did in those days. It was a boat ride from Melbourne to Sydney. But uh, when he got up there, Lenny said, oh, you know, Dad, it was such good fun. And maybe I could go back the other way, because I didn't get, you know, and go back down via Melbourne and ride home. He wanted to ride back. He rode back. And he did ride back. He did ride back. By himself. By himself. Not straight away, mind you, because he he had a few more things to do. He he entered the horse into the Easter show. They won (laughs) ribbons again. The Easter show was a big event that year because it was it coincided with the bridge opening. 
and also with the Sheffield Shield match, which was being held next door between South Australia and New South Wales. So uh, that year at the at the show, they had a group of children who sort of made a tableau type thing on the thing of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and then they did it with sheep, believe it or not. <laughs> Anyhow, well, they marshaled sheep into the shape of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Yeah, I'm even doubting myself as I say that. To be Let, honest, don't doubt it because it's such a magnificent yeah, image. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> So Lenny went to the show and he went to the last day of the Shield match um, and got to see his hero, Don Bradman, bat. But guess what? He made a duck. No. Yeah. You've got to be pretty unlucky, don't you, to ride your horse all the way to Sydney (laughs) to watch Bradman bat and he makes a duck. But at least he got to see the opening of the Harbour Bridge. And he got to meet Bradman. Bradman gave him an autographed cricket bat which is still in possession of the family or in the family's possession. Ah, so that's a nice touch. That is a nice touch. How long did it take Lenny to ride back, as long as it took him to get up there in the first place? I think it was around the same time. I, Lenny staff aides, once he reaches Sydney, not much is heard of Lenny through history, except until he reaches Melbourne again. He, he pops up twice again. He pops up once in a letter from an old digger on Wolbundry Station, uh, this digger writes to Lenny's father, and I, I, I've got a copy of the letter. It's one of those magnificent letters. This man is 70 years old. He was in his 50s when he enlisted, and he fought on the Western Front. And so he was quite moved to have a boy from a farm called Fleurs and, and a war hero's son stay mm. with him. And it, it triggers this uh, beautiful letter about the war, and, you know, that... You can almost call it a romanticism that those men had or perhaps it was just their way of talking about what they went through in the Western Districts. It's a five-page letter, but it also talks about the um, soldier settlements because he is in charge of the soldier settlement there on Wolbundry Station and it's gone to pot. They're not making any money. They're all in debt. It's all turned turtle. It's quite an interesting document, that. And then Lenny gets to Melbourne and he's celebrated again in Melbourne with a town hall reception. Um, he's getting quite used to these by now, I yeah, guess. Yeah, he's quite the celebrity, isn't he? And uh, it's a magnificent photograph. I think it's in the age at the time. It's certainly one of the Melbourne newspapers of Lenny riding down Swanson Street and, and quite alone and this very long shadow cast down the street as he heads off back towards home <laughs> and uh, toward Lee and Gather. Tell me that the people of Lingatha were there to greet him with open arms when he returned home. Oh, they were very happy to have their eldest brother home. You know, he, his siblings were delighted, naturally. His, his sister Beryl, who, as I mentioned before, is still alive today, she speaks so fondly of Lenny and, and the fun that they had on the farm. It's an excellent uh, children's book uh, written by Mary Small, and uh, Beryl's provided her with a photograph of, of a cake that I presume somebody's baked, possibly his mother, <laughs> For him on return, and it's a beautiful cake. It's a it's a bit like an old fashioned wedding cake, but it's got a it's got a boy and a horse oh. on the top. So oh. when he got home, he got a cake, which is very nice. So, but Lenny what happened sort of, to him next? I mean, he, did he he was ten. He turned ten on the journey. He went yes, back to school. Yes, he turned ten on the on the return journey. Yep. What did he do after he left school? What happened to him? What what did he do for a job? Well, Lenny, Lenny signed up. You know, he fulfilled that terrible dream that boys seem to have at that age to go to war. So he signed up in 1914, I think, when he was 18 and a half. He went into the army, was trained as a fitter. He did serve overseas late in the war in 1944-45 in the Pacific region there with the Americans. He came home and he became an engineer. He lived a very sort of 
modest sort of anonymous life. He worked at the Holden factory in Melbourne. Um, there were tales that he used to go roller skating sometimes. Roller skates. <laughs> 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 His sister-in-law's told me that story, which is, uh, uh, and he was a bright fellow. Um, Did he talk about this extraordinary journey much? I get the feeling that Lenny just wasn't talkative. He was a, just one of those kids who kept things to himself. So no, he didn't really talk about it a lot. You can, I've spoken to his daughter, and she knows the story. Um, he would talk about it in context of other things. Uh, he was a great lover of Farlap. And, I mean, this is a story that shadows Lenny's stories. That Farlap actually rides the race in America, the famous race in America, and wins it while Lenny's riding the city. But Farlap dies on the way home. And Beryl tells me that, Beryl and his daughter say this, that when he, when he would talk about Farlap, he used to get a bit of a choke in his voice. You know, he's quite the horseman. But, no, Lenny... Had an anonymous life, married, he had a child, obviously. Except for one thing, he had one great adventure planned. He wanted to sail a boat to Tasmania and then to New Zealand. And he'd never do anything the easy way, Lenny. So he decided to, he was building the boat himself in the backyard of the, their Melbourne home. Um, unfortunately, he died before the boat was completed. He before died in the sit- 70s. Um, and the family was stuck this enormous boat that they couldn't <laughs> move out of the backyard. So... <laughs> Lenny never not got to go on his uh, final journey. I want to tell you about Ginger Mick too because the well, horse is important. Exactly. I was going to say, what happened to Ginger Mick? Well, Ginger Mick lived for another 10, 15 years and I've visited Ginger Mick's grave. You have not. I have. Uh, How I is da- it marked? <laughs> it's not marked. It's <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> it's, it's a corner of a paddock behind the milking sheds at, at Fleur's where uh, Lenny grew up. So, so Ginger Mick was buried there in the field and there's, there are still Guire the family in that area and, and they showed me where it was, where the horse was buried. I mean, were you surprised that you didn't go on to be a world traveller or, or an explorer? I mean, it seems such a remarkable thing to do as a kind of one-off. I'm delighted that he didn't. I love the fact that, that Lenny withdrew. That you know, I, that I think Australia rubbed its eyes and said, "Did that really happen?" <laughs> I mean, because his story is, is rarely remarked upon for the next seventy, seventy-five, eighty years. I mean, I say it's mentioned in histories in passing. I wrote that chapter in the book, uh, which I wrote ten, fifteen years ago, uh, and even then, it passed on. There's been a couple of little books written. There's a children's book by Mary Small and another children's book by Stephanie Owen Reader. Just recently, I think Lenny's story started to gain traction again, without rhyme or reason. Um, there's a, a chap that, w- that was worked on Bridge Climb, and he contacted me, and he fell in love with the story uh, that he'd read in my book, and he'd never heard it. And he started to tell everybody that does the Bridge Climb, oh. which is thousands of people a week. He's a chap called Wheatley, Bernard Wheatley. He, he wrote a magnificent song about Lenny. And... Uh, just late last year, Lee and Gather decided that it really did have something to be proud of. You know, Sydney's got the bridge, but they had Lenny Guyther. <laughs> and so the community at Lee and Gather decided that they would raise funds themselves and get some seeding money from the government and erect a statue to Lenny, which I was delighted to hear. Have was, you seen it? Yes, I have. I I. I I went there uh, for the unveiling of the statue. I thought, oh, you know, it'll be 15 people in a park. In there were thousands of people there. It was outstanding. Um, and Lee and Gather, now that Lee and Gather knows about Lenny, it loves Lenny. The local school had raised funds by putting on a musical 
about Lenny's, right? The local mayor is the biggest Lenny fan. The local mayor sort of introduced the statue and then uh, rushed across and took his seat with the band, the Lengatha band, which played, played some tunes from the time. Bernard Wheatley sang and Beryl, who's in her 90s now, came down and was there, his sister. It's a magnificent statue. It's the classic photograph of Lenny on Ginger Mick with the Southwester. It's one of the best statues I've ever seen. Uh, one of the best statues marking somebody. It's right up there with the Dennis Lilly statue outside, outside the um, MCG and the Demon Spoffeth one at the back of the nets at the SCG. I love those two as well. <laughs> Peter, I am so happy that you discovered this story. It is a magnificent one. It just makes me very, very happy. Peter Lawler, thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.